Hey, let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the freedom that we enjoy as Americans tonight. And we do pray for our nation. And we pray that you would give wisdom to its leaders, that you would give integrity of character to our leaders, and that you would give particular wisdom in rooting out the uh, pockets of evil as this war on terrorism proceeds. We pray that you'd give them wisdom that they not be deceived in the negotiations or other things, there's hidden agendas that we don't see. We thank you for your grace toward this nation, that over and over again you demonstrated grace upon grace when we did not earn it, we did not deserve it, and yet you've continued very graciously. So we therefore pray that you would illuminate and grow the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would continue to be the salt of the earth in our nation. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, tonight uh, we're going to finish the uh, church history section, and um, we're, we're, because next week, uh, I apologize for this, but I have another out-of-town engagement, so we won't meet next week. Then we'll probably meet only about two or three times more, and that's it for the, for the season. Um, the next two or three times we'll meet, we're going to be on the Christian way of life. In the church age, what's unique about that versus the way believers lived in other dispensations. And with that, we'll, we'll conclude. And then in the fall, we'll pick up the end of the church age. That involves a whole nother bucket of worms. Um, so I'd rather not. We just don't have time to do that. We've run out of time. Um, again, just to review, the church age, there is a sequence of the way the Holy Spirit has worked with the church. We saw in the foundational period that the Holy Spirit gave the canon of Scripture. And giving the canon of Scripture solved the problem of who's in authority. It solved the problem of where we use, what, what do we use as a standard of reference. And the standard is the Word of God. So we have the canon given, though the canon was not recognized in its entirety for centuries after that. At least the canon existed at this time, and the writings became uh, available and were known. Then we found that the next thing that was discussed was the Trinity and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are major topics. And it shows you that if this is the way the Holy Spirit teaches, then we ought to learn from his lesson plan. And what he starts with is revelation, authoritative revelation. So right with the canon, we already eliminate the, the supremacy of human reason and the supremacy of human experience. Neither reason nor experience are the final authorities. It's God's word and revelation that is the final authority. Once that question is resolved and we have the question of authority handled, then we go on to describe and to define and understand who God is and particularly who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And we understand that because we go back to understand the content of Revelation. It's not how we feel. It's not what we think the Trinity should be, what we think the Trinity shouldn't be, what we think Jesus to be, what we don't think Jesus should be. That's not the issue. The issue is going back to the canon. What does the Scripture say of the person of God and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? So that was the first four or five hundred years of the, of the teaching of the Holy Spirit. Next, we came down to the Middle Ages. 
And in the Middle Age period, for those centuries, the Holy Spirit was also teaching the church. And in particular, the issue was what was happening on the cross. And you remember we dealt with there's two major ways of handling the cross of the Lord Jesus. One is that something objective, something judicial, something forensic was done on the cross. That's one way. That is uh, Anselm. And I've been pronouncing it wrong, as I was corrected last weekend by a friend of mine, Tommy Ice, who's a history bug. It's Anselm, S-E-L-M, not S-E-L-E-M. And I spelled it right, but I'm mispronouncing it, so it's Anselm. And there's no E between L and M, either in the literary or in the way you say his name. Um, and then the opposite of Anselm's uh, position on the cross of Christ is that of Abelard. And Abelard's point was that it's not the objective work done on that cross, but it's the effect of the martyrdom of Jesus on my heart. So Anselm was a subjective. It was what the cross does for me, what the cross does for you or doesn't do for you. And it was, it was a, to have an effect on the way people think, on our emotions, and so forth. Now, the point is that the cross does have an effect on our emotions. It does have a subjective effect. But think about it. It has it because of its objective truthfulness of what actually happened on the cross. So if what actually happened on the cross didn't happen, and it was a tragic accident, a miscarriage of justice, a silly martyrdom of a good guy then, you see, if you really took that position, what subjective response is that going to have? So, that was clear. And then we came down to the Reformation period, and that was, how do we appropriate it? And the issue is, we appropriated grace by faith, and by faith alone. It cannot be appropriated by human merit. There's no human good works. God doesn't deal His grace out, drip by drip, based on our obedience. If he did that, he'd never get any grace. Grace is not a reward for obedience. And it's hard to say that because, remember, the Protestants got immediately on hot water with Catholic Europe over this issue. Because they said, once you say this, then you've given people a license to sin. Well, not really. Not if you look at it from the standpoint of Scripture because it's also God's a disciplinarian. So he handles that sort of a problem. But they were, everybody's so afraid that people have to, as a result of this, the Reformation and the, the uh, Roman Catholic issue about faith and faith alone appropriating God's grace completely. What it boils down to is, what is the motivation for the Christian life? Because that was the argument that this thing would lead to bad things. If you really preached a gospel of the grace of God that is appropriated by faith and faith alone, independently of human merit, then since you've excluded human merit as the basis for receiving the grace, you've taken away motivation. But if you think about it backwards and say, wait a minute, what is it that I'm receiving here? I'm receiving atonement for my sin. Now, no matter how many good works I do, I still haven't solved the problem of the atonement. And my sin. 
I mean, it's like, and it's very interesting. I was reading the apologetic paper that was passed out uh, a number of weeks ago by a Pakistani Christian who witnesses a lot to, to Muslims. And, of course, in witnessing to Muslims, you have the similar problem because Islam is built on works. It's built, you know, literally, it's, it's a scale here. If Allah thinks that, you know, your scale's weighted on the good side, you, you, you know, welcome aboard kind of thing. But this guy very cleverly points out, he said, you know, isn't it interesting? There's not a country on earth, including the Muslim countries, where there's a judicial system that works that way. Now think about it. What nation on earth has a law code that works like the following? Person A is a good, upstanding person in the community. Person A, one day, kills his neighbor. Now, have you ever heard of a court saying, well, because so-and-so uh, did many good works in his life, he's absolved from murdering somebody? And do we ever have that justice working out? And he said, you don't see it in Pakistan. You don't see it in Saudi Arabia. You don't see it in Iraq. You don't see it in Iran. You don't see it in Egypt. You don't see it in America, England, Britain, Germany, France. No, no country's judicial system works in a balancing of good works against bad works. So then all of a sudden, now when we come to God, God's supposed to operate by some sort of scheme that no country has, including the Muslim countries, including Roman Catholic countries. So anyway, I thought it was an interesting point that he was driving at here, showing the absurdity of salvation by works. Because this isn't, uh, we forget what salvation is all about here. Salvation isn't about feeling good. Salvation isn't a psychological pill. Salvation isn't uh, how to, you know, go to a higher plane of life. Salvation is salvation from what? From judgment against sin. Let's get down to the, the nut cutting here, the judicial position. That is, the problem is I need salvation because I am a sinner. So I can't save myself if I've committed a sin because I because the sins on my record. So I can't get rid of that unless the judge does something. It's out of my hands. So anyway, that's what came out of the Middle Ages. Now, last time we went on to what we'll call the, the modern period of time. And in this period, we said that two things come up for emphasis and they're still being worked on. And that is the nature of the church and the doctrine of future things. And those two go together. And you can easily see why those two topics go together by thinking this way. We talk in, in, about a meaning of a word in a sentence by context. Okay? And, you know, one of the rules of Bible study, when you read the Bible and you don't know what a word means or there's a nuance that you're studying... You, there's a set of rules that you use to find the meaning of that word. One is, you look in the immediate sentence. I mean, if people would look in the immediate sentence of Ephesians 2, 8, 9, they'd understand that the gift can't be faith in there. The sentence isn't constructed that way. So, the point is that you go into the, into the immediate sentence, then you go into the immediate paragraph, then you go into the book, because the book has an argument to it. Does this meaning make sense in light of the overall argument of the book? Then you go in to other guy, the other works written by that same man. So, for example, you're studying Peter's epistles. Well, there's only three places in the Bible you can get Peter knowledge from, and that's First Peter, Second Peter, and Mark. 
because Peter apparently was very involved in that particular gospel. So, apart from Mark, there's only second and first. So you have a problem with Second Peter three six someplace. The logic place to go is look at verse six. Go to Second Peter three. Go to Second Peter. Go to First Peter, and maybe check check what's going on in Mark. And that, that becomes your corpus. And then after that, if you can't find something, okay, you now you go to Paul. But you keep, you, it's the context. Well, history is like that. Our lives are like that. The church has a place in history. It has a place in God's plan, just like you and I have a place in history. What role do we play in history? And so the issue is, what role does the church play in history? Well, you can't tell what role the church plays in history until you know what the plan of history is from beginning to end. So that's why these two topics, the nature of the church and future things, are intimately tied together. And your view of eschatology or future things will control what you think the church is all about. If you take one view of prophecy, I'm going to go into that tonight. That's what we're going to work on. The connection between the nature of the church and the nature of future things. There, there's a logic that forces you, if you believe this way, you've got to believe that about the church. If you believe this way, you've got to believe that about the church. And it's nothing personal. It's just that that's the way the logic works out. So, the church and future things. Now, I said last time, if you would look at the old notes that we handed out a couple of years ago. For those of you who weren't here, I'll just briefly review the three major views of future things. And I want to, I want to start with a chart that uh, goes back to the first century before Jesus. Because in the first century before Jesus, there were a set of books being written called the Apocryphal Writings. These, by the way, are the books that are in the Catholic Bible that are not in the Protestant Bible. And several of these books uh, take a certain position on future things. Now, what's important about these books is that they, they were trying to solve a problem that Judaism had. Now, let's draw a timeline from left to right. And in, in Judaism, the idea was that this is the present right here. Going into the future, we know that we would finally have an eternal blessing. In other words, think back to the diagram I've shown thousands of times. God is going to separate good from evil. And that's going to be permanent separation. It's never going to mix up again. And it's going to go on forever. So, that was the general idea of history. History is going to end in eternal blessing or eternal cursing. In other words, there'll be a judgment at the end here. And there has to be to close the issue of the moral problem. You don't have judgment in, in your eschatology. You have not solved the problem of evil. So people don't like that. People don't want to hear about judgment. But you can come back and say, if you don't like judgment in the future, you have no solution to the evil problem. Those two things go together. Well, what they, what they also had, they had various details like... Here's the judgment. They had the detail of resurrection. And they talked about kingdom conditions and the triumph of, of Messiah in history or the messianic kingdom. So we'll put MK, the messianic kingdom. Well, the question was, how are these three related? That's the question. How does the messianic kingdom get related to the eternal state and so forth? There are, are basically only, several, only some things possible. Here's the timeline again. Here's eternity. Now, we can say 
that the kingdom is equal to eternity. It's just another expression. They're synonyms. So that once you have judgment, you can go into the eternal kingdom. So here's how judgment goes here. And that makes the resurrection simultaneous with the judgment. And this kingdom, the millennial kingdom, is the same as eternal state. And that position comes over today as amillennialism. Meaning, ah, there's the A. There is no messianic kingdom in this history. History goes on just the way it is now. And then, boom, terminates with the return of Christ. And we go into an eternal state. So, that view was, was prevalent. Uh, you know, it wasn't defined, it wasn't developed. But that's one logical possibility. Uh, another possibility was that... The messianic, there's going to be a separation here where the resurrection is going to be, come over here ahead of the judgment. And in between those, you'll have the messianic kingdom. And that was the view that was articulated. In fact, before John wrote the gospel, the uh, book of Revelation, in the apocryphal literature, you read about a thousand year kingdom. That's, by the way, why you interpret, we interpret the thousand years in Revelation 19 as literal. Because that's how people would have understood it. Or Revelation 20. That's how people would have understood it. How do we know that people would have understood that? Because that's what was already written about in apocryphal literature. So, that's one possibility. The messianic kingdom is between the resurrection and the judgment. And if that's the case, that would correspond to what we would call pre-millennialism. Okay. But there's another possibility, third possibility, and this one would have the timeline, the eternity, eternity, to be the judgment, to be the resurrection. Now, this wasn't true in, in the Jewish position so much as it became to be true in the Christian position, and that is because the resurrection and ascension of Jesus introduced this thing called the church that really what's going on here is that the church is the fulfillment of the messianic kingdom. So what in the Old Testament was thought to be the physical, material, political kingdom of a literal, physical Messiah literally ruling from literal Jerusalem in a literal way becomes spiritualized to be the church. Okay? So, here's the church. And the church is now becoming the kingdom. Now, let's look at that for a moment. Because what that means is that the church spiritually fulfills the prophecies of the kingdom. And this position immediately introduces a new way of interpreting prophecy. That is, the prophecy is different in how it's fulfilled through the church than you would have thought if you had just been a reader of the Old Testament. And there's some reasons why they say this. By the way, this position here, with a messianic kingdom to be the church, can also be a millennial in the sense that there's no physical kingdom. So, 
in this view, for example, the millennial kingdom is the church. You can bring the resurrection over against the judgment, terminate history. So it, it looks pretty much like this one, uh, this one here, the first one. However, there's a variant on that. And that is because the church is a recipient of great and precious promises. There is a need for some triumphal termination to this history that we can say the church is going to increase and increase and increase and increase all the way until the second coming of Christ and the world will be Christianized. That optimism is called a post-millennial interpretation. And what that means is that Jesus Christ post, post after Jesus Christ comes back after the millennial kingdom, the millennial kingdom being the church age now. So, there's three, three positions. Amillennial, there is no kingdom. As a variant of amillennialism, we say that this is sort of a kingdom now. And it's going to get better and better and better until Jesus comes back. That's post-millennialism. Premillennialism separates the resurrection and the judgment and says that the church age is not the kingdom. Now, if you look at those three positions, just for a moment, just look at it logically. If you look at those three positions, there's only one of them that forcibly separates the church from Old Testament kingdom imagery. Premillennialism. It's the only one of the three. Because in this view, the church age finishes, is done prior to the kingdom coming. So the church doesn't even participate in that kingdom. Well, it is a, it is a relationship. But the church age isn't the kingdom. The kingdom is the kingdom. In this view, the church and the kingdom are the same thing. The church is the kingdom uh, spiritualized. So, there are only three or four answers to this question of the future. And one of the things that you want to train yourself to see through the way the Holy Spirit has taught the church is that on most theological questions, there are not ten variants or, or ten possible answers. Most of the questions that have been dealt with in church history have only two or three answers possible. Not ten, not eight, but probably only two or three. And you spin your wheels and debate and argue and whatever you want to do, there are only two or three answers to the big questions. So it's, it's, one, it's good news in the sense that at least you can master what the two or three variants are and learn to recognize them when you run across them. So we want to do that tonight. And I won't spend a lot of time reviewing what we went over when we went over this back two years ago at the end of the Old Testament. I want to just, however, review just a little bit about each one. First, I want to just say a few things about premillennialism. This view right here, premillennialism, the church age and the millennial kingdom. <coughs> In the period prior to Jesus and the New Testament... The premillennial idea of the resurrection being separated from the judgment, being part of this history, not eternity, not equated with eternity, but part of this history, that tended to be the Jewish position. 
going into the time of Jesus and the apostles. For example, R.H. Charles says of 1st Enoch, which is one of the books in the apocryphal set books, according to the universal expectation of the past, the resurrection and the final judgment were to form the prelude to an everlasting messianic kingdom on earth. That would be up here. But, in the centuries immediately preceding Jesus and the apostles, these events are relegated to its close and the messianic kingdom is for the first time in literature conceived of being of temporary duration. So this view was developing long, well not long, hundreds of years before the apostles and Jesus came onto the scene. It was part of the thinking that was going on in the Jewish community trying to think through where Daniel led them, where the Ezekiel led them, where the prophetic books led them. It was a result of thinking about this more deeply, particularly what was going on in 200 years before Jesus and the apostles. Think about it. Because what, what is the rule that we've learned so far in church history about how does the Holy Spirit teach? He teaches by circumstantially pressuring people. He providentially works in the environment to put us in a situation where we are forced, literally forced, to learn about Him. Now, it's not, it's true, you know, sometimes we really get the light and turns on and we really learn the neat way without being forced into something. But because we're all a group of miserable, fallen people, even though we're being redeemed, we learn most of the time the hard way. Most of the time we have to screw up 150 times before we finally get it. And if you think about it, 200 years before the apostles and Jesus, what was the circumstantial pressure being put on the Jewish community? Conquest. They were being conquered. They had these... The fact, you know, the one guy who is the precursor of the Antichrist, he lived in. You know what his name was? Antiochus Epiphanes. And he's the guy that of all the men in history, we all really should have biographies of Antiochus Epiphanes because it would give us a, a profile of what the Antichrist is going to look like. He's a nice guy, first of all. He wasn't a scoundrel. He's a nice guy. His whole motivation was he wanted to uh, amalgamate Jewish culture with Gentile culture. Why can't we all be one happy globe? One worldism. Okay? Antichrist. And he got really irritated, like a lot of superficially good people. They are great people until you cross them. And once you cross them, once you oppose them, they turn into really nasty people. So a lot of good people can really become very, very nasty people once they're crossed. And Antiochus Epiphanes was one of that. And you can read the story in 1 Maccabees, how what he did to the Jews when he discovered that they didn't like go along with his one-worldism and his one-joint culture. And they revolted. They said, no, we're Jews. We're not going to eat pork. And no, our athletes are going to go naked in a stadium. And no, we're not going to do all the other things you say. Because we're Jews and God's word says this. And so he, he came in hard on them. And then after he came, found there was a big mess going on and finally the Romans conquered them. So here they are, small Jewish community, always being conquered, always being oppressed. Now, what do you suppose that does to you? 
It makes you want to think about, well, where is history going? Where's my hope? So in the centuries just prior to Jesus, there was a lot of thinking going on about where's history going. And during that, they viewed, for reasons which we won't go into, they started visualizing the Messianic Kingdom as a triumph when the Messiah will come, he will end Roman pressure, he will do away with the Antiochus Epiphanes, and we will see victory and we will see his kingdom come in this history prior to eternity. That was their vision. That was their hope. Well, that sprung out of, of, the, of prior Christian centuries. And it turned out, for the first one or two hundred years of church history, on the other side of the cross, guess what the prevailing view was? Premillennialism. Listen to what Justin Martyr says. But I and whoever are on all points right-minded Christians... Know that there will be a resurrection of the dead and a thousand years in Jerusalem, which will then be built, adorned and enlarged, as the prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah and others declare. And furthermore, a man with us named John, one of the apostles of Christ, predicted by revelation that was made to him that those who believed in our Christ would spend a thousand years in Jerusalem and thereafter the general, or supposed to speak briefly, the eternal resurrection and judgment of all men would likewise take place. Does that sound like Justin Martin might have read the book of Revelation? See, that was the prevailing view. And you say, well, what happened to it? Why did the church... And finally become amillennial. Christendom became amillennial in, after about three or four hundred years. Premillennialism was, sh- was shelved. It was suppressed. It was forgotten, frankly. And the church became amillennial. There were various reasons why. And again, they're circumstantial. Think about it. What happened four or five hundred years after Christ? What was the big event that changed Christianity's relationship to the Roman Empire? Constantine. Constantine became a Christian, at least nominally, and he said Christianity is going to be the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, when he did that, what do you suppose that had as far as an effect on the persecuted position of the church? It relieved it. So there wasn't a political... Uh, depression, there was optimism in the air that at last the church had done something. Well, gee, maybe the church is the kingdom after all. Along with that was an increasing philosophic infatuation with Platonism. Augustine and some of these guys had philosophic presuppositions that, that they brought over from Greek philosophy. And one of the great presuppositions that led to this view was that matter is inherently evil. Matter is inherently evil and good only triumphs in the spiritual things, not in the material things. Lusts of the flesh, that sort of thing. What is the answer to that? Now, let's, you know, just let's think about this for a moment. Somebody comes up to you and say that matter is inherently evil. Inherently evil. Watch the word. Inherently evil. What are you going to say to him? What's your answer to that one? Are they right? Matter is inherently evil? What does that mean, inherently? It means that matter always has been evil. Was matter evil before the fall? Did God make matter evil? No. 
What about the resurrection of Jesus? Was that a material body of matter? He ate food. He said, come here, touch me. It wasn't a ghost. He was matter, a resurrection body. That's matter. Is that evil? No. Oh, well, then matter isn't inherently evil, is it? So that means that God can make good matter as well as tolerate this fallen thing we call our bodies and the fallen world around us. So, the Greeks, being good pagans, and remember I show you the diagram, what is true of paganism over against Christianity as far as good and evil? All of you should know that one because we've gone over it a thousand times. The pagan view is that good and evil coexist forever and ever. There wasn't a time when it started, and there wasn't a time when it separates at the end. Well, Greek philosophers thought that. Well, matter exists forever and ever, according to their position. And since good and evil exist forever and ever, guess what? Matter must be, therefore, evil inherently. So that was the presupposition brought over into the church through Augustine and other guys. So not only was it a politically optimistic age, it was Greek-influenced. And then the third thing happened. The church did not want to be associated with, guess who? Jews. The so-called Christ-killers as the church has often and sadly called the Jew, forgetting that Jesus was a Jew. Paul was a Jew. John was a Jew. In fact, it seems to me like the New Testament was written mostly by Jews. Reminds me of the time when I had a friend witnessing to a Jewish businessman. This had several sessions of this and that, and the guy would get upset and argue with my friend and Finally, he got frustrated one day, and they were going at it over lunch or something. So, and he was had his Bible there, and he was trying to show this guy something. And the guy, guys, objecting. So finally, my friend, in frustration, said, "You know, you know who wrote this? This isn't a Gentile book. You Jews wrote it. So what's the matter? What's why am I wrong here? Are these guys Jews or not?" And it was very funny because the guy stopped because all of a sudden he realized, "Hey, yeah, that's our book." I have a friend of mine, a scientist over in Edgewood area, and one day he was saying, we always kind of josh around together, and um, he uh, said one day about uh, the, the time pressure, and um, he says, gosh, I wish we had more hours in our shift, you know, longer time gets stuff done. And I said, well, you ought to think of Joshua, that was a long day. And he, and he, he has this Jewish accent, you know, and he says, oh, he says, that's right, he was one of our boys. And so they naturally think this way. And the point was that the church was ashamed to be associated with Jews. Rise of anti-Semitism. So amillennialism historically started in the 4th or 5th century. It totally dominated the church. Premillennialism was held by a little obscure people here and there, the few colonies in Switzerland somewhere in the mountains that hid out. But basically, premillennialism died by, by three or four or five hundred A.D. Now, everywhere amillennialism went, it tends culturally toward, toward, I won't say it promotes anti-Semitism, but it allows anti-Semitism to develop. And you can see why. And I didn't bring the book with me tonight. I had two books I was going to bring tonight and ran off without them. But in one of those books, I was going to read you a passage that has to do um, and I guess I have it in the notes, in fact. If you look at the handout for tonight, um, 
let's see, on page um, 12, well, I guess it's not here. It's, it's going to be on the, uh, it'll be on another page, I guess. Uh, let me just see. Well, the book is Hal Lindsey's uh, book. Huh? Oh, well, I don't have page 104. Do you have uh, <laughs> today's handout? Um, I was wondering where it went. Um, page 104 well actually it starts on page 103 in the bottom if you start on page 103 the last paragraph I'm working with the premillennialism there and um, you'll see where it says premillennialism exerted a strong influence upon American culture and its foreign policy and I want to go through this because I want you to see that ideas have consequences. And then we'll go back and deal with where premillennialism came from. But just to make it clear, I want you to see in our t- world today why this idea of the millennial kingdom being the fulfillment to the Jewish nation of Israel, why that idea has affected American foreign policy. It really has. And it's amazing to see this. And in spite of the fact that, that people really don't know why it's, it's done this. Premillennialism has exerted a strong influence in American culture and its foreign policy. By asserting a future for the nation Israel, premillennialism tends to be Jew-friendly. Whereas postmillennialism and amillennialism historically permits anti-Semitism to rise in societies where those ideas dominate. Think of where amillennialism dominates on a world map. Reformation countries were not necessarily pre-mill. They, they stimulated some of the premillennialism, but Germany is Catholic and Lutheran, both all millennial. Hmm, not interesting observation. France was mostly Catholic, and before it became totally secular, and therefore, what was its eschatology? Amillennialism. Italy, solidly Roman Catholic. What's its eschatology? Amillennialism. The Eastern Orthodox Church tends to be amillennial too. Russia. Mm. What's the Christianity dominating Russia? Russian Orthodoxy. What's its eschatology? Amillennial. So everywhere you see amillennialism, what has been true about those countries and the pogroms against the Jews? They've all bred that. That's what we're talking about. Thus, most of Europe, dominated it is by amillennial viewpoint among institutions historically identified with the Christian faith. I didn't finish the sentence. I must have been tired at night when I typed this. A few European exceptions have occurred. Balfour, now this is an interesting fact that Tommy Ice just mentioned to me. You know who Balfour was? He was the British foreign minister, advisor, who arranged the treaty that set up the Palestinian state for Jews. Not modern Israel. Israel, the, the thing that set up Israel was 1948. But back after World War I, in that era, the Palestinian mandate, which, by the way, in those days, Palestinian meant Jewish person. 
In those days, the Palestinian mandate effectively set up that area of the world as a Jewish colony. And Balfour was the Englishman that designed that policy. Now, historically, it's interesting that Balfour, the Englishman who approved the creation of the Jewish nation in Palestine, was a premillennial Plymouth Brethren. Now, the British Foreign Office has traditionally not been too friendly to Jews. In fact, one of the big problems they had in World War I was they got Lawrence of Arabia to go in and uh, fight the Turks for the Ottoman Empire and fight them, get the Arabs on the side of Britain against the Ottoman Empire. And, and of course, when he did that, he had to promise something to the Arabs. And here, Lawrence of Arabia was uh, promising the Arabs they could have this land. And then after the war, the land's given to the Jews. Boom. So right away, you can see those little tensions in there, that how that whole thing was created. But in any case, Balfour was one of the few Englishmen and influential Englishmen that set that whole thing up. And he was, I think, interestingly, a premillennial Plymouth Brethren. In Germany, during the rise of Hitler, premillennial Brethren were the first Gentiles, the first Germans, to recognize a significant evil in the Nazi agenda. Footnote. Hal Lindsey tells the story of the evangelical premillennial brethren. Listen to who he was. He doesn't mention the guy's name because he heard about it from his son. The evangelical premillennial brethren, head of the German Army Officers Union, in whose home the future leaders of the Third Reich all four of them, Hitler, Hess, Goring, and Goebbels, met to try to secure his support to take control of the German government. This is before Hitler got in power. This is in the early 30s. They have this big meeting in this guy's house, and they go to the guy's house to have the meeting because he's the head of the German officer union. What do they go to his place for? Who do you think they want to help the Nazis take over Germany? They want the allegiance of the military. So they go talk to this guy. Well, this guy turns out to have been a Christian of evangelical brethren, and he's a premillennialist. Wrong guy, Hitler. Picked the wrong boy to talk to here this time. Not too smart. He meant to try to secure his support to take control of the government, realizing he could not persuade the Nazi leaders to give up their final solution to their idea of the Jewish problem. He and his family, at great financial loss, fled to America before World War II broke out. So I give you those two incidents, the Balfour and the Palestinian state and the head of the, uh, what do they call the German Army Union? Can't think of the name. Steel Helmet or something is the name of it. But that was the, the union that controlled the military. So now we have two key actors in history that influenced history here. Um, and it, it's, uh, it's just illustrations of the role of premillennialism. Um, if you go back up on page 103, however, you'll see there that premillennialism has had a bad rep. And you talk to reformed amillennial people and they'll remember these things. So you, as if you're identified as a premillennialist, understand there's some bad baggage that's been historically associated with premillennialism and you will be called to task for this even though you haven't participated. Premillennialism has long been associated with Judaism and extremist cults. 
Not until after the Reformation did renewed interest in Bible study lead to a resurrection of the view that had dominated the first few centuries. By the first half of the 19th century, Bible conferences began to emphasize the contrasts between Israel and the church observed through a literal interpretive approach to Scripture. It again, however, received bad press when the Adventist movement sought to date-set the return of Christ only to be embarrassed by its non-occurrence in 1844. That was when the Millerites got in New York. I don't know what's wrong with it. New York State and California seem to generate all the religious kooks of the world. Um, something in the geography or something in New York, but this, they, they got together in New York and got white sheets or something all ready for the return of Jesus in 1844 and it never happened. Well, that was a great, that was a wonderful testimony to premillennialism. But a lesson was learned. You don't date set. There's not any information in Scripture to date set. We know the scheme of God's prophecy, but we don't have any way of date setting. And orthodox, modern, conservative premillennialism is never date setting. When you read these books about the rapture is going to happen next year, you can kiss it off because whoever's writing that kind of literature is not a historic premillennialist. They're doing some bizarre thing with the text, but it's not, it's not the main line. As Professor Hannah notes, after the Civil War, a type of premillennialism emerged that eschewed date setting, but insisted on the imminent return of Christ. The teaching of an any moment return of Christ in a secret rapture accomplished the same purpose in that it created expectancy. This form of premillennialism became increasingly popular through the Bible Conference Movement. Now, the Bible Conference Movement is something you ought to know about. The Bible Conference Movement was dating largely from 1865 to 1880. That 15-year period from 1865 to about 1880. And uh, about 1870 even. It was right after the Civil War. After the country got back on its feet, there were a series of Bible Conferences in western Massachusetts and in, in this, that same area around Albany and so forth. And it was made up, the interesting thing about this Bible conference movement is that is where the theology of dispensations and premillennialism was, was actually preached. Yeah, between 1865, 1870, and 1880. It was a tremendous time of, of serious Christians seriously doing things. And the interesting thing was that this is before Palestine. They were already predicting the return of the, the Israel on the basis of their premillennialism. If Jesus is going to come back and set up the kingdom, he's going to do it with the temple and the land, guess what? Israel is going to have to come back in the land. So here these people are in 1880 looking forward to the return of the Jews to the land. When did, it, when did Palestine start? It happened after when Balfour, after World War I. So... The, those were, were, were very key, crucial points. They were also key for another reason. The Bible conference movement led to the Schofield Bible. Because C.I. Schofield, the editor of the Schofield Bible, was the guy who studied under the men who taught in that Bible conference movement. That's the connection. And what happened was that if you have a Schofield Bible, you'll notice the publisher. 
The publisher you would never dream would have published the Schofield Bible. Oxford University Press. And I remember Dr. Walbert telling us down seminary why that happened. That's an interesting point of history. Why do you suppose a world-renowned publisher of the stature of Oxford University Press would print the fundamentalist Schofield Bible? You know why? Money. During the Depression, Oxford University Press was hurting, like a lot of companies. But they discovered something. No matter how poor people were, they'd buy Bibles. And guess what the best-selling Bible was? Hmm. You guessed it. So guess what Oxford University Press decided to print? The Schofield Bible. So it's ironic that the Schofield Bible's wide dissemination all over the world came about because of the, of the effect of the Depression on the publisher. So there were a number of things kind of interesting here. But the thing to remember about the Bible Conference movement is it was the place where modern dispensational premillennialism was basically fixed. Uh, and it was the place where the anticipation of the, of the resurrect, resurrected state or revived state of Israel came to be voiced. And because the Schofield Bible uh, came out of that and other conservative books, the liberal assault on Christianity in America was retarded. It wasn't stopped. But it was seriously retarded because people had the background from the teachers from that Bible conference movement. And what would happen is people would go to, in the summer, they'd go to these Bible conferences, they'd get notes, they'd take notes back home, they'd start studying their Bibles like they never studied before. And then they'd hear some clown in the pulpit talk about, well, we're not sure whether the story of Noah is a fable or not. And they'd say, well, wait a minute, whoa, what's going on here? And so what you had is you had hundreds and hundreds of people, lay people, in the major denominations raising their hands and saying, wait a minute, what is it you're teaching here? Excuse me? Didn't get that. And so here are these brilliant guys getting their doctorates from Germany, all meshed in higher criticism of the Bible and liberalism. They come sneaking into the seminaries, and then they start working on the poor guys, you know, the country boys, going to be pastors, and they'd sow seeds of doubt in these guys' minds, whether the Scripture is the Word of God and all the rest of it, and couldn't have been, Moses didn't write it, J.E.D.P. wrote it, and blah, 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 blah. And they go on and tear these guys' faith apart, and the poor kids come out back up in the pulpit, and gee, you know, they want to do good things, and so Christianity becomes a social movement. And the people that called, called it were the people who had been trained under the men in the Bible conference movement. And for that reason, the liberal theologians have hated the Schofield Bible. They have hated Bible conferences. They have done everything they can to ridicule that. The word fundamentalist is a term today that is used pejoratively when actually, you know who started the word fundamentalist? It was a group of conservative. By this time, the fundamentalists, dispensation premillennialists, come out of the Bible Conference movement, and the conservative reformed people got together and they put out a series of books. I have them at home. I finally found a set of these. You find them in used bookstores, or you can sometimes they republish them. But if you ever see books advertised called The Fundamentals, it's a historic set of books that you ought to get hold of. Because those books were written during about 1910. And what they were was when people started smelling a rat, started feeling, these guys, these preachers, 
are drift. Something's going on. We don't understand it, but there's liberalism coming in here. Something doesn't smell right. And so they started saying, we don't even know whether our missionaries that we send out believe the Word of God. So what is it that we believe here? So the fundamentals were the title of that book series. And in the book called The Fundamentals, they went through, here's the fundamentals. The deity of Jesus, the authority of Scripture, the blood atonement, substitutionary atonement, all those, these things. And they said, if people don't hold to those fundamentals, they're not Christians. Oh, it was that bigoted language. And so now the liberals come in and they say, well, how dare you say that Joe isn't a Christian because Joe doesn't believe your fundamentals? Now, that's not very Christian of you to call him a pagan because he doesn't believe in the fundamentals. You know how it happens. But see, that's where it got started. And that's why the word fundamentalist has a certain onus to it, because it comes out of the ridicule of the liberals because they didn't like getting called. It was nasty time in America. We think, well, everything was sweet and roses. It really wasn't. had a lot of problems. But the big idea to learn here tonight is that behind this movement, this wrenching debate that was going on, premillennialism played a vital role because it is the heart of the three positions... It's the hardest one to reconcile with liberalism. Postmillennialism is easy. Things are getting better and better. All we need is another social program. Communism. Fascism. Some other ism. All the modern isms fulfill and can be interpreted postmillennially. Catholics in Latin America. What's the big thing back in the last 15, 20 years in Latin America? Liberation theology. Catholic Jesuits, of all people, going into Latin America and preaching to the peasants and everybody else that the, the sin of the world, except by sin of the world, they mean poverty. By sin of the world, they mean something. And those are results of sin, but those aren't sins. And so we've got to get rid of sins of the world. So what we're going to do is overthrow the dictators. Overthrow, and that's true. They had weirdos, banana republics in Latin America. We're going to get rid of those guys. Bring in the communists. they got a good program. So now all of a sudden you've got atheist communists joining with Roman Catholic priests to overthrow governments all over Latin America. How did that get started? It wouldn't have had the Catholic Church been premillennial. See? Amillennialism allows this kind of stuff to take on. Now, this is not enough proof that it's true. The only proof these guys true is go back to Scripture. But in this section on history, I want you to see that history is a laboratory where if you want to test what a belief leads to, you just know history. And you can always test it. If this idea holds here, then this is the result. Okay. Let's talk a little bit. uh, Go back to page 102. And we'll talk a little bit about the, um, the other views. On page 102, you'll see where it says Reform Protestantism. We're going to talk about Amelens and Postmelens a little bit here. Reform Protestantism, unfortunately, failed to correct Roman Catholic and Orthodox Amillennialism. 
Amillennialism sees history as struggling along between good and evil, making no ethical progress until the end of the world with the return of Jesus Christ. During the last two centuries, unbelieving skeptics within organized Protestant circles have sought to redefine the purpose of the church. Now, see what happens? What did I say when we started tonight? The nature of the church is intimately related to your view of future things. So, if the church really is the kingdom, the church is involved in social polit- and so- uh, society and politics. It's politically activist. And it's involved in social programs. It's involved in economic programs because the kingdom views... Is that true or false? That the kingdom, the ultimate kingdom, has a political and social and economic aspect to it. Yes, it does. Think of the book of Deuteronomy. So, if the church is involved with the kingdom, then the church is going to be involved in all those other areas. So... This is why liberal clergymen are often found in every movement for social change that happens to be viewed as ethically progressive. In Latin America, Catholic theologians embrace Marxist liberation movements. In colonial America, some notable Puritans in their optimism over America's opportunities turned to post-millennialism. Post, uh, the Puritans were a mixed bag. They were premillennial Puritans, they were amillennial Puritans, and they were postmillennial Puritans. Don't ever let anybody tell you that all Puritans were postmillennial. They were not. They had a lot of pr- pr- uh, guys that were premill. In fact, if you looked at the notes that I handed out years ago, I listed all the Puritans who were premills. In colonial America, they, they became post-mill. Then Unitarian influences and modern, modernist teachers hijacked post-millennial visions and transformed them into vehicles of a social gospel. I once did a lot of research on this topic when I was in seminary and uh, produced a paper. Wal- Walbert said I should have published it and it's been sitting on a shelf for 30, 40 years. I never got around to it. But here's a finding that I made. I went back through those years in our country and I started reading what the liberals were doing. And you know, they came down, even though they would differ with each other, they came down in a vehement diatribe against premillennialism. And you know why? They said, if a person is a pre-mill, we can't get them to believe in our programs. If a person is a premillennialist, we can't get them to go along with our programs. Well, of course, because we don't believe we're in the kingdom. So, as Puritanism declined, Unitarianism increased. See, that's, a role, that's what's happening in America. As Puritanism declined, Unitarianism increased. And guess what the Unitarian vision of the future is? Postmillennialism. And what is the vehicle of salvation in Unitarianism? Ever been to Unitarian Church? Ever talked to Unitarian? What's characteristic of it? Think about it. In Harford County, where's the Unitarian Church physically located? Anybody know? It's right next to campus of HCC. Unitarians are always involved in education. They pride themselves on their intellect because education is the way of salvation for the future society. So once you master these ideas, you can walk through these things and basically get oriented very quickly when you deal with people. Because you just have to master these basic ideas. 
in recent years, post and even Charles Hodge, by the way, who was a conservative Presbyterian at Princeton, he was a post-millennialist. So you had conservatives in the 19th century who were post-millennial. In recent years, post-millennialism has emerged among conservatives again. Now they're called Reconstructionists. Now, they've done some wonderful things. I mean, I've read a lot of the Reconstructionist literature, and some of it, frankly, is, is wonderful. What they're believing is you reconstruct every area of society on the Word of God. Well, it's a nice motive to do that. The problem is, if Christ doesn't come back, you deal with sinful, unregenerate people who don't want society to be reconstructed on a biblical basis. However, the positive side is that they have produced some wonderful stuff for Christians, at least, to think through these areas of economics and other places. Severe problems plague premillennialism, however. Non-literal interpretation of prophetic passages of Scripture. Why do you suppose that is? Look up at the diagram. If the millennial kingdom was prophesied in Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Nahum and Habakkuk and Haggai and all the rest, they're all Jewish guys talking about what? Church or Israel? Talking about Israel. Talking about the kingdom centering on what city? Jerusalem. That's Israel. So all these kingdoms is Jewish, it's Semitic, it's Jerusalem-centered. church isn't even in it. And so to make the church get in it, you're going to have to change the hermeneutic. So that's why premillennialism is also characterized by what we call a literal method of interpreting the scripture. That is, when I read a kingdom passage in here, I interpret it literally. Let's give an example as we close tonight. Turn to Isaiah. Here's a good example. Isaiah chapter 2. Now, here's a, here's a passage that amillennials have to make and bend and twist to make it fit the church. Now, pretend you're a Jew now. You're sitting back in Israel and you're reading verse 1. The word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning who? Judah is a Jewish tribe. Not anything about Gentiles there in verse 1. And what does it say? And Jerusalem. I'm talking about Rome, Athens, Washington, D.C. Now it will come about in the last days. Oh, prophecy now. In the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Now, that's catastrophism. It's talking about terrain modification in the nation so that the temple is going to be on the highest mountain on the earth during the millennial kingdom. And many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of who? Romans? Galatians? No, the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us concerning his ways, we may walk in his paths, for the law will go forth from Zion, not from the Vatican, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, not from Rome, Frankfurt, or London, 
and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. And everybody wants to skip to verse 4. In fact, I think verse 4 is on the UN building in New York City. But everybody leaves out verses 1, 2, and 3. See? We like verse 4. Don't like verse 3. Why don't you like verse 3? Because it says the Lord's going to judge and it's going to be by means of His Word. And so, when you have the kingdom established, one of the signs is world peace. Does everybody like world peace? Sure, everybody wants world peace. So you can see how powerful, if you're screwed up in your eschatology, you'll be a sucker for all kinds of schemes, plots, programs, and everything else. Premillennialism keeps you straight to the scripture. You know that the conditions of verse 4 will not happen until the condition of verse 3 happens, until Jesus comes back. And until Jesus comes back, there will be wars. And, and isn't that what he said in Romans, by the way, Matthew 24? There will be wars and rumors of wars until what? Until I come back. So that means strong military. So one of the political implications of premillennialism is you have a strong national defense. People say, well, I don't know how... I'm, I'm kind of neutral in politics. Well, think logically. Where do these uh, positions lead to? So anyway, this is a, a quick overview. Um, I leave the rest of you in the notes. If you don't have the notes from part four on the, all these eschatology things, um, you might talk to my wife or uh, talk to one of the people that's been coming to the class to get copies of that. Next week, uh, next week we will not meet. We will meet the week following. And when we do that, we're going to get into the filling of the Holy Spirit and the unique things that are true of the church age. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight and for the Word of God. We thank you that you have so worked down through the corridors of time and history, so graciously condescending to teach and teach and teach and correct and correct. And we thank you that at least at this point, 20 centuries down the road, we can look back and see that the Holy Spirit has guided the church, has guided us and remained uh, faithful to not only present the Word of God, create it historically, preserve it historically, and also open our minds so that we become ever more consistently uh, coherent with Scriptures. We thank you now in Christ's name. Amen. A good, that's a good question. Uh, Scofield Bible is not uh, at all firm on the six-day creation. They put the time in the gap there. Um, I just finished an article that was printed in the Chafer Theological Society, uh, Seminary Journal uh, last month in which I addressed that issue. What had happened was that when dispensational theology, that is the return to a literal interpretation of Scripture started. 
right after the Reformation, and, and it, it was gradual. It's been a gradual awareness. It's not something that people sat in a room and thought it all through at once. So the point was that even though potentially the literal method of interpretation would lead to modern creationism, it didn't do so overnight. It only did so through the same teaching procedure that the church, the Holy Spirit has used over the centuries of going down blind alleys and finding it doesn't work. And what had happened was that in the early 1830s and 1840s, um, keep in mind that prior to the Bible Conference movement in 1860, uh, about 1820, 1830, you had a movement in England that created the, the Plymouth Brethren. And central to that movement was a man by the name of Darby. D-A-R-B-A-Y. And uh, Darby was the guy who probably in church history first put out a clear description of the difference between the church and Israel. Um, and he, he, he didn't develop all the implications of that. But he, he had, he just, he was an Anglican clergyman, by the way. I always love to point out the ecumenical background of these guys. as Presbyterians, Baptists, Anglicans, everybody else in this, because it was a, a church-wide revival of literal interpretation. And Darby was, was confronted uh, with, uh, he was an evangelist to Ireland, interestingly, in Dublin. And uh, he had experienced all kinds of problems witnessing to Catholic Irish. And it was involved in that struggle, and he was the one who finally put his, his finger on it that the church was smearing the clarity between Israel and itself by not stating its destiny is distinct. And so he was the guy that started that. Well, while that was happening in England, in New England, here in our country, the first kind of waves of rethinking the history of Genesis 1 was going on. And what had happened, if you go back to the science of it, um, right around the Reformation, there were people who started in geology, for example, believing in the Noahic Flood. But it was a naive belief in the Flood in that during the Middle Ages, prior to that time, people had seen fossils in the rocks and thought they were created in the rock. That was a prevalent belief in the Middle Ages. Well, then the Protestants started reading the Bible and said, wait a minute, you know, you go out in these rocks and you see these fossils, it's all water laid, they're sedimentary rocks. So they said, well, it must be the flood. Well, mixed in with all that, there were a lot of new science, this was the age of science starting. And, which, by the way, was instigated a lot by Protestantism. Um, and, and mixed in with that was a group of people who were not Christians, not regenerated, did not have a heart seeking for the Lord and to be bowing the knee to the authority of Scripture. And they went out and they, I believe, had a sinful mental attitude that they themselves did not even appreciate. And by that, what I mean is that when science began, in those modern science began, one of the early projects of modern science was to create 
a universal history. For the same reason that tonight we just said, how do you, do, how do you get perspective on yourself and the church if you don't know the place of the church and yourself in the big plan? Well, science, in modern science when it rose, started what I call the Universal History Project, which was a secularized attempt to reformat the plan of history and insulate man from divine intervention. There's a motive. You, gotta, you can't be naive, people. We believe in the fallen nature. You cannot believe in the objectivity of science. I'm sorry. I've come out of science. Science is as influenced by, by sinful impulses as any other thing. And the sinful impulse manifested itself in an attempt to construct a view of history that would save man from any divine intervention. If you want a scripture that shows you insight into that motive, talk to, turn to 2 Peter 3, 5 or 7. So, what happened was the geologists came in and they said, oh, those rocks can't be the flood of Noah. Well, we believe in the flood of Noah and that Bible stuff, but you know, th th this is too much rock for, for, for Noah's flood. And they had all these op op opposing questions. And so, quickly, in geology, it was all swept away. So, by 1830, 1840, uh, uniformitarianism come in. Geology was, quote, witnessing to thousands and thousands of years of age, and it couldn't possibly be, the Bible couldn't possibly be true. So, there began in, 18, in the 1800s an attempt by the church to, quote, uh, come to terms with science. And what the church failed to see, because they did not mine the scriptures for all the data that God put in the scriptures, the church prematurely, foolishly concluded that this universal history project out there that the geologists had been working on was gospel truth. That it wasn't an interpretation of reality, it was reality. And if this long ages was reality, and the scripture also was reality, we've got to get these two together. So they desperately searched for ways of doing it. That tried to keep the, the Universal History Project alive with hundreds of thousands of years. It wasn't millions and millions then, it was hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, they tried to keep that project going as truth and as reality, and then keep this book going. So one of the early attempts was you've got to get disposed of time. So where do you dispose of time? And that came up with this Genesis 1-1-1-2 gap. So when Schofield, a hundred years later, think of the time now, a hundred years later, Schofield comes out with his Bible, things haven't changed. It's the only tool the church had thought about to try to reconcile the Universal History Project with the Bible. The problem is, by the time Schofield came out with his Bible, the Universal History Project had progressed far on down the line and was talking not about 200,000-year histories, 500,000-year histories. By, 18, by 1930, they were talking about millions of years of history. So, uh, the, the church in the 19th century, up to the time of Schofield Bible, they, they tried every way that you can imagine to harmonize. The first one was the gap field. Then, then people didn't like that, and so then they said, well, gosh, uh, there was development, because by this time it wasn't the geologists involved in the Universal History Project, but also who else joined them with Darwin? The biologists. 
So now not only were the geologists talking about long time, now the biologists were talking about you need a long time to transform from primitive to advanced life forms. So now there had to be a development going on. Well, why do you fit that in with a gap here? So, so by 1840, 1850, now we come out and say, and Dr. Hanna, the guy I quote in the notes, the historian, he did a paper on this. It was published back, I guess, uh, in the late 70s, where Dr. Hanna went back and he took the theolog theological journals like Bibliotheca Sacra, and he went all the way back to 1830, and he traced it from 1830 to 1880, and looked at every single article that dealt with Genesis and creation. And he traced over those 40 or 50 years. First, it was the gap field. Then the biologists came in, and so they had to do the time. So the way they handled time was they, that was the day-age field. Now the days are ages. Then they, then that came in by the end of the period of 1880-1890. Evolution had come so, and Darwin had written in 18, whatever, what, 65, 70, something right after the Civil War, 70, forget what the date was. Um, Darwin had already written Origin of Species was circulating all through England came to America and at this point uh, they capitulated conservatives uh, most of the reformed conservative camp that were represented in this journal um, said well uh, we don't believe in a gap gap doesn't solve our problem day ages uh, somehow it's there but we just have to accommodate the facts of modern science and that's the way it was left up until 1960, largely. And the, prior to that, the only people that ironically had spoken out were the, was a cult about creation. And that we have to admit that uh, the Seventh-day Adventists were the ones who said, no, we don't believe in a gap. We believe in a literal genesis. And that's interesting because Seventh-day Adventists of all the, the cults is closest to orthodoxy. Um, they were the ones who were, had their literal interpretation that led, unfortunately, to the dating scheme of 1844. But they were also the people who, in their schools, honored a literal genesis. And they tried to produce uh, a few scholars that tried to deal with, with reconciling the Bible, but they always had enough respect for the text that they, unlike the rest of the church, including the evangelicals, uh, they said, you know... There's certain limits. You can't just go into the text and make the text say anything you want it to say. And they held the line, but they never produced any um, people who wrote who would really put pain into the liberals. And in, eight, in 1960, two men decided they were going to do it, Whitcomb and Morris. And Whitcomb was an Old Testament scholar graduated from Princeton, uh, had the academics. Um, Henry Morris was uh, the head, uh, was taught uh, hydraulic engineering of all things, of all engineering things to deal with geology. He's the guy that wrote the textbook on hydraulics, that is water deposition and so forth. And he was a, go a godly Christian, and so was John, John Whitcomb. And they got together and said, we're going to tackle this thing. And they were both dispensational, literal interpreters of the Bible. And what they did was breathtaking. I wrote my thesis at Dallas Seminary on what they did in 1960. I surveyed every single book review that was ever written on their book, The Genesis Flood. 
I had responses from evangelical scientists like this. If I wore the blinders on my mind that Henry Morris wears on his, I would deny my faith. Christian faculty member. Um, Another one wrote in a public magazine when he was reviewing the book, well, geologists have spent two or three hundred years building the science of historical geology, and now Whitcomb and Morris come along with a family Bible and try to make all geologists drive trucks now because their science is so bad. These sarcastic, nasty reviews. But you see, what happened was that Whitcomb and Morris did something that no one else in church history had ever done before. That's why it was a significant book. What they said was, if you go back three, 300 years, all the way back to the Reformation, and you, you look, who has been successful in reconciling this book with the Universal History Project? No one. Every device and scheme of trying to reconcile them has failed. The gap theory failed. Why did the gap theory fail? You know why the gap theory failed? Because you still have literal days. God's still creating. Whether it's recreating or not, you've got a miraculous thing going on. Now that you've put all the geology and time spans behind Genesis 1-2, now where's the geological evidence of the universal flood? So there's all kinds of internal problems. Uh, if you take the days to be uh, ages, now you've got a sequence problem. The days are out of sequence. The days, if they're ages, do not fit the evolutionary time frame. What evolutionary time frame postulates that plants came into existence and after that, the stars? So the days are out of sequence. So that didn't work. And people know this. It's not me. Uh, it just never worked. It's nothing ever worked. So Wickham and Morris came up and said, hey, wait a minute. Here's why it's never worked. You guys are trying to reconcile the scriptures with the wrong thing. You guys are taking this book that's been created by unbelievers for through 300 years called the Universal History Project. And you're taking this not as an interpretation of the facts. You're taking it as fact. The Universal History Project is true. It's objectively proven to be true. And you're trying to make these two come together and you can't get them together. So what Wisdom and Morris simply said was this is wrong. And guess what, guys? We're going to start all over from scratch. That thing, that whole universal history project, got off to a wrong start. Your radioactive dates, there's systematic error in them somewhere. We don't know where it is, but the error's got to be in there. The issue of the speed of light, there's a, there's a hidden fallacy in that, too. In geology, they were able to show fallacies because Whitcomb, I mean, because Morris knew his hydraulics. He went out and he took pictures of overthrusts where you have old rock under, uh, supposedly, old rock on top of younger rock. That is, rock that has been dated because of the fossils in it, as old, it's got primitive fossils, and it's lying on top of new rock. And the traditional explanation for that, evolutionary, is that the, this is a shear zone where the rocks got sheared and went like this. Well, while Whitcomb and Morris did and a couple of his allies, they went out and they found where the interface along the rock was like this. And they said if you had a shear zone, you wouldn't have teeth on it. That rock was deposited that way. So it's not that old rock, it's the new rock. So you guys got a problem somewhere. Well, they raised so many problems in their book. 
including the fact and the embarrassing fact that radioactive dating sometimes yield negative ages. There's a cute one for you. Live mollusks date at three million years old. Huh? The guy, it's live. How can it be three million years old? And you have this stuff that goes on. And they, they raised all the dirty linen that was buried in the Universal History Project. And boy, I'll tell you what, was the reaction, boy, were they vilified. Even evangelical Christians vilified them because the evangelical Christians that came against them were embarrassed because they were Christian people involved in the establishment that was involved in the Universal History Project. These guys have their salaries paid by research grants that are trying to support the Universal History Project. So they got ticked off. And plus the fact, I think they were spiritually embarrassed that here's a brave man, a godly man, who finally stood up and said, no, you're wrong. And I stand for the authority of Scripture. And these guys had compromised all their professional life. And once you start down the road of compromise, you're really faked out. So they got caught and they didn't like it. And ever since then, there's been a divergence. Right now, the last eight years, we've got a guy going around. He's on the Dobson show. He's on a bunch of others called Hugh Ross. And he's supposed to be some Christian physicist. And he believes in long ages and all the rest of it. And we're all screwed up. Bible isn't the way it really appears to be, you know. For, for, for 20 centuries, Christians have read the Bible seven literal days, but now we suddenly decide the days aren't literal. I mean, come on. So anyway, if you look at guys like Hugh Ross that are impressing, Bill Bright, James Dobson, and others, if you look at him and you look at his tactics and his approach, it's exactly what happened in the 19th century. I told Tommy Ice, we ought to write an article about Hugh Ross, he's in the wrong century. He had to go back in the 19th century and go all over again because he's using the same arguments. Day, age, the, maybe it's a framework hypothesis. That's the new one. They're literal days, but it's, it's just the literary structure God used to describe millions of years. But the point is, excellent question, Joyce, that, that you raised because it shows that in church history, things don't gel all at once. There's a gradual process of growing awareness. And creationism started in 1960, really the modern movement. It's a new movement. And that's why it's phenomenal as to what it has done so far. With very, very little resources. You think of what the Universal History Project did. For two or three hundred years, they've gone out and, and, and gone all over the surface of the earth and under the earth taking pictures, taking data, analyzing the data within that frame of reference. Now, you talk about coming from behind, babes. You know, we're coming from two or three hundred years behind. We're not going to take all that data and resynthesize it overnight. It's going to take years, centuries, if the Lord tarries. And maybe he won't, and then we'll be doing that in the millennial kingdom. So, so what? But there's a gradual awareness. One generation of Christians never get it all together. They make advances, make more understanding here, more understanding here. But no one generation is going to have it all. And we don't. We just have to understand where we are in the progress of the Holy Spirit's teaching the church. And in our day, the issue is the nature of the church and future things. And maybe there's something else to expand on before Jesus comes back. I don't know. 
But that's, that's obviously what's happened in the last 200 years. And the result of that is when the eschatology gets fixed, gradually it's getting fixed, uh, all the other answers are going away, and as eschatology gels, guess what? That is the frame of reference for the new universal history. The universal history shouldn't be that, it should be this. And it's the word of God that gives the framework. So that's why in our day, I believe firmly that eschatology is the issue. It's not just a peripheral thing to be treated, oh, well, we don't bother eschatology. Well, I think we have to bother with eschatology because every adverse movement to the church is an eschatological movement. The Universal History Project, it's an eschatology. It's a folk, false, pagan-based eschatology. Communism was an eschatological political system. Fascism was an eschatological political system. Islam, the fundamental Islam, have a political agenda. And what is it? To conquer the world and make every member of the human race submit and bow to Allah, which means bow to the Mullahs. And that's an eschatological vision of where history should be going and their place in it. The suicide bombers. They have an eschatology. Come on, what is it? It's on the radio and television all the time. What do they believe is going to happen to them? If they kill somebody and blow somebody up, you know, they get to fornicate with 72 virgins for the rest of eternity. So, that's an eschatology, isn't it? See? Every movement you think of that we're faced with in the last hundred years has been an eschatological movement. So why do you think the Holy Spirit's emphasizing, come on, church, get your eschatology together? That's right. And I was very well fixed on how he was, you know, he was just... But there's only one thing. Yes. And I've... Oh, yes. And I'll tell you what, it's very strong in Maryland in reform circles. And what's interesting about it is that you have... Um, the church supposedly takes over the blessings of Israel. What about the cursings? Hmm? What about the cursings? How come the church doesn't take over the cursings from Israel? Yeah, that, so that goes back with Israel, yeah. But, I, but just as an example, uh, again, I'll close out now, but Tommy Ice was at a debate with, uh, over the weekend, over last week, with uh, last Thursday night, actually, doing a debate um, that he's given several places around the nation, television, uh, with preteritism. Now, preteritism follows out from postmillennialism. Basically, what preteritism is, is the belief that Jesus has already come back. And that 70 AD was the fulfillment of all those things. That's right. Oh, yeah. 70 AD. This is all through Maryland now. This is, this is up in uh, Elton that we're having the debate now. So it shows you where it all is coming from. 
And so, so the idea there is the preterism. Well, what is the preterist doing? The preterists are spiritualizing the language of Revelation. And the stars aren't falling from heaven in 70 A.D. So the stars that fall from heaven have to be something other than literal stars falling from heaven. So now we're spiritualizing Matthew and Revelation. And there's answers to that. Basically, the answer is that Jesus and John are using language of Isaiah, Hosea, Jeremiah. Now, where did Isaiah, Hosea, and Jeremiah and Daniel get their language from? Israel's history. And what do you find in Israel's history in Egypt? The sun turned to darkness. You have the plagues. You have the pestilence. Was that spiritual? Was that the Egyptian army in the Exodus? No. It was physical, catastrophic events. And the prophets have taken over that language of physical catastrophism to phrase their future prophecies. Prophecies of the future. So the preterists know this. So guess what? Now they started a website in which they're denying and calling all reformed people back to a non-literal view of Genesis. And they've got to because they're holding to a non-literal view in Revelation and how you handle Revelation is related to how you handle Genesis. So the logic of their position, this is the way God works in history. You purge out stupidity. And the way you purge stupidity can mask itself for a while. But finally, it starts to part. And you begin to see, wait a minute, where is this road leading to? And that process takes decades to do.